0: Hello. As I record this, junior doctors are beginning another round of strikes. Unless a speedy settlement is reached, they'll be followed by consultants and then radiographers. Teachers, civil servants and college lecturers are, among others, taking disruptive industrial action. Next week, I won't be taking my usual trips to London due to train and tube strikes." Now, besides blaming each other, both sides in all these disputes tell the public, who face anything from minor inconvenience to loss of income or even risk to their lives, that they regret the industrial action and its consequences. But what if you saw strikes, or at least strikes in our unequal and troubled society, as a good thing? Having read the book Troublemaking, Why You Should Organise Your Workplace, I think that's the opinion of today's guest on Forward Vision, that book's author, Lydia Hughes. So, as our summer of discontent continues, I'm guessing she's going to feel things are looking rather promising. But let's find out.
1: Bored of the same big ideas podcasts that teach you nothing? Sick of self-appointed leadership gurus who peddle the same tired old tropes? want to really get under the skin of some fresh thinking, then you've come to the right place. This is Forward Vision, the podcast presented by Matthew Taylor and brought to you by the Forward Institute.
0: Lydia, welcome to Forward Vision. Just before we get into this, tell me a bit about yourself because this book is partly written from your perspective as an activist.
1: Yeah, thank you so much for having me on Matthew. I think we'll have a really good chat today. So for me, from my personal perspective, I was an activist for many years as a young person going on climate demos and even did a bit of canvassing for the Labour Party. And really throughout all that kind of activisty work, I really felt quite powerless, to be honest quite that the actions that we were taking didn't really tip the balance of power in a really serious and meaningful way. And it was only when I connected with the cleaners at my university at LSE, who were starting their own battle against the university to end outsourcing, did I really come into contact with the trade union movement at first. And they waged an amazing campaign, mostly workers from West Africa and the Caribbean. And at the end of that campaign, they got brought back in house and ended outsourcing at NSE. And it was through seeing that and seeing the power that they held and built that I really came onto trade unions and have been organising in unions ever since.
0: Now, that's absolutely fascinating, Lee, because I thought, I mean, this is a really interesting thing about the book, I think, is that A lot of books that are written by radicals and wanting to change the world are, as it were, pebbles thrown into a pond. They might cause a ripple, but then the pond is back as it was before. What is exciting for you, what gives this book this kind of sense of possibility, is that in these struggles, you are genuinely creating change. You're not simply asking those in power to do things differently, you are forcing those in power to do things differently. So this is a particular characteristic, isn't it, of workplace industrial action, if it's successful, is that it actually forces change.
1: Absolutely. And I think this is what really brought me to union organizing. You know, we can ask and we can ask really nicely and we can ask again and we can get our story out in the media, but only really where we have our most leverage, which is in the workplace. When we withdraw our labor, can we have leverage big enough to actually make that change that we want to see? I really wish it were so, but I think employers rarely give improvements out of the goodness of their hearts. Often it doesn't make financial sense or it doesn't fit with the business plan. So having that leverage and Threatening, to be honest, bigger costs than those that would occur if the change were made really brings about that change.
0: As I say, it's powerful because the kind of leaders that engage in the work of the Forward Institute, the organisation that sponsors this podcast and people who listen to this, I think... Are used to kind of doing the right thing but in these ways which are in some ways quite intangible that are at the margins or that are seeking to influence broader systems and as someone who who spent a lot of time doing that kind of thing as well one can see the attraction of the struggle and the possibility of the struggle ending in victory so tell me is the kind of organizing you're describing and it's a particular type of organizing this is really about people who are not organized not in trade unions people often in the very lowest paid, lowest status jobs, coming together, getting organised, articulating demands, and as you put in the book, often winning. Is this kind of organising on the rise?
1: Yeah, I would say it absolutely is. For me, it really started during the pandemic. We started a project in which any worker in an unorganised workplace could get in touch with us and could seek advice, and we would talk to them about forming a union. And we'd been doing this project for a few months and then the pandemic hit and we were totally overwhelmed. Overwhelmed with people who were desperate to form a union, desperate to have some kind of demand or to fight back, but actually really didn't know how and had perhaps not even met anyone in the union. None of their friends were, or none of their family members. So we were starting from a really low base. But we saw time and time again, these same workers coming, wanting to form a union and doing it successfully and launching campaigns. And I think this latest strike wave has really shown the ongoing relevance of unions. And I hope it carries on.
0: And is there a pattern, Lydia, to the reaction of employers when this happens? Here they are, they've got a group of workers, often a group of workers who are migrants, not people who've been organised, people they assume that they can kind of more or less tell what to do. And then suddenly, these people are starting to fight back. Have have you recognised a particular pattern to the way in which bosses, managers, employers respond to this?
1: I have. Yeah, unfortunately, it's not a good one. The pattern usually goes, people come together, they form demands, as you said, put them to employers. And For the most part, the answer is always no. The answer is we can't accommodate that. It's not within our budget. It's not possible. And one of the things that we really try and get across in the book is that this is what you will always hear when you start. You will hear it's not possible and there's a no, but until you use that threat of action and use your leverage, then the answer will start to change. Using the example of LSE that I discussed earlier with the cleaners being brought in house, I think it was five months of no, we had was no, it's not possible. It will never happen. We can't give you improved terms and conditions. Often yeah, the reason varies based on what company or university you're in, but only then when we had the strike action, we had nine days in total and big, loud, disruptive demonstrations. Did that answer start shifting? And it starts with, oh, maybe we could talk about it. Maybe let's have a meeting and talk about it. And even then, as we ramped up the action further, it became, okay, what can we do to stop this? And how can we, you know, make peace again in our workplace?
0: And what you describe is a kind of insurgent trade unionism, isn't it? I mean, we're used to the idea of industrial action, people withdraw their work and then there are picket lines and we kind of know that's a characteristic. But The struggles that you describe use a much wider palette of tactics, don't they, in terms of mobilizing other groups in solidarity. For example, you mobilize students and some academics. I know in the LSE struggle you're talking about, but novel ways of getting publicity, drawing attention to the struggle. There's quite a lot of, I mean, for want of a better word, kind of entrepreneurial activism to what you do, isn't there? (laughs)
1: Yeah, absolutely. I'm part of a movement of smaller unions, quite new unions. And these tactics, I think, are starting to be used by the broader trade union movement as well. And it all comes back to this important principle that we talk about in the book, which is just action. And I'm interested to see that it's kind of part of the philosophy of this podcast as well, of actions being important, because as we see, it is how we win. And whereas taking strike action is fantastic. It's one form of that action. It's not the whole package. There are lots of things we can do to use our leverage. And for too long in the union movement, we've relied just on a few tactics like negotiation or a small kind of picket line or trying to lobby the government. And what really we've tried to do is bring a whole array of tactics to say that if we're going to move some of these big employers, we need to be pushing on multiple buttons at the same time and really taking a very holistic view of leverage and what can be leveraged against an employer to create a
0: victory. And does that include consumers, Lydia? So it's sometimes a group that you might seek to mobilise consumers by them being aware of the fact that they are implicitly condoning the actions that you're trying to overturn.
1: Yeah, I think so. I mean, we have a difficult relationship with this, I think. I mean, in the university, I guess you'd say that the students were the consumers. And using the example of LSE again, that was one of the tensions that we worked through in the campaign. You know, when you have these students that the university has turned into consumers, how do you utilise that relationship to put pressure on the university? And actually, it was the moment when students were actually really pissed off because their exams were being disrupted that the university really took note because as the people that were paying their fees, who really were standing up and were angry. But in more kind of like gig economy struggles, for example, like at Deliveroo or Uber, with this gig economy model, if we're having consumer boycotts, Then we're also decreasing the wages and the job opportunities of people working for Deliveroo and Uber, for example. So there is definitely space for consumers to be there and to support. But it's often a little bit more confusing when it comes to the gig economy.
0: And one of the frontiers for this organising spirit is some of the kind of newer companies that like to portray themselves as having a kind of funky image it's the kind of starbucks or a technology company that you talk about quite a lot in the book of one of your examples amazon of course has been subject to quite a lot of organizing efforts so you know those companies i think often like to portray themselves as being beyond the old industrial struggles but i think you want to emphasize that they're not at all
1: yeah absolutely i mean one of the Groups that we're really trying to talk to with the book, as well as this kind of precarious, low-wage, perhaps migrant worker, group of workers that we're used to working with. The book speaks to young people who might be young professionals working in jobs that they're told are not precarious enough to organize. You know, they might earn a decent wage. It's okay. It's probably a white-collar job. They're sitting behind a desk. And by speaking to those people, we're trying to say that trade unionism and organizing isn't just for those who society seems as hyper exploited. It's also for those who see themselves in much better jobs. And those workplaces often, we've had our experience working in the games industry. It will be very common for the employers to say, oh, we're all a family. It's all great. We all look after each other. And that's fantastic until a point when that all of a sudden becomes not true anymore, especially when people try and organise a union.
0: And you said that mainstream unions are adopting more of your kind of insurgent entrepreneurial kind of methods. But they've also, my sense is, viewed your kind of organising with a certain amount of trepidation. And you talk quite a lot in the book about bureaucracy, which for you denotes a particular structural category of people, those people who are, as it were, they're not part of the management, not part of the system of oppression or exploitation as you would portray it, but they're not, on the other hand, part of the movement. They are there as a kind of buffer and they have their own interests. And those interests often, from your perspective, involve selling out workers and encouraging them to accept less than they should. Tell me about your relations with the more mainstream trade union movement.
1: I think this has definitely happened more in the mainstream union movement, but even smaller unions aren't impervious to it. We have this phenomenon, I mean, I'm sure you can speak to it in the NHS as well, but as unions get bigger, they need administrators and membership people, then caseworkers, and then there's organisers and paid officials And these employees exist in a bit of a strange state. They mediate the relationship between the employer and the members. So they're in between both. They've got to have one face to the employer and then one to members. And as you said, like we say in the book, that material interests come into it. Whereas members have one material interest, they're fighting for a pay rise or they're fighting for better improvements in sick pay, for example, these group of employees that work for the union don't necessarily share these same material interests. Their interest is in maintaining the union, pays their salary, and also often in maintaining a good and strong relationship with the employers as well. And this is a dynamic that we don't necessarily, you know, we don't call for the abolition of the bureaucracy. We just call for more awareness of this dynamic especially when we're speaking to young people and really trying to get them involved in unions. If you don't have any awareness of this two-faced dynamic, then you can be quite disappointed, not understanding why the union acts in a certain way or why they might try and make you have a pay deal that isn't quite what you want. So to go into unions aware of this dynamic, it definitely helps solve a lot of problems. And we also call on members, to consider themselves in a battle, not just with employers, but also with the union bureaucracy. And by having this, what we call like a rank and file politics, we have the ability to have much stronger campaigns.
0: It's interesting. It reminds me, and I did an industrial relations master's many, many years ago when trade unions are much stronger. But One of the things that would often be said there was that actually having strong shop stewards was A good thing because those shop stewards would know what their members were willing to accept. And if you had weak shop stewards, they would accept a deal which actually wouldn't be acceptable to the members. And then you would get wildcat strikes and various other things. So it's kind of interesting, this question of the role of union office holders. Now, let's get back to what I said at the beginning and the summer of discontent. Simple question, Lydia. Are you pleased to see so much strike action?
1: We always call it the hot strike summer, (laughs) but we've been saying that all winter as well. Short answer, yes, absolutely. I think it's fantastic. I think in the context that we are in, in this moment of the total cost of living crisis, I think it's so necessary to be taking this action. And I think for my own politics, it's not necessarily the fact that the action is happening. That is the most exciting, but I think hopefully we are building a whole new generation of trade unionists. As I've seen time and time again on picket lines and through campaigns, when you have a struggle like this, a big campaign, you don't just, you know, win some improvements and pay in conditions. You're actually building a generation of excited, interested, politicized workers who will go on and will form the trade union movement of tomorrow so i'm excited but also nervous i think what happens in the next few months in terms of whether the strikes are successful or not will determine the strength of the union movement going forward from my perspective i think the trade union bureaucracy you know the leaders were in a position where they had to call this action where the cost of living crisis has gotten so bad that Action was so necessary, but because lots of them been dormant for quite some time, there isn't that rank and file pressure that has forced these strikes to happen. So my hope is that through this action and exciting picket lines, that there can be a groundswell of rank and file action that can sustain the unions for a lot longer. That's what I'm excited about. So it's not necessarily a win-lose situation.
0: So in your book, I mean, you talk about your own example of the LSE and universities are kind of half private, half public institutions. But most of the other examples are about the private sector, in which case you're able to talk about the scope which exists for workers to take a greater share of the value that is generated by those companies. So in a sense, what organising involves, if it's focused on paying conditions, is to try to shift the share of value so that workers get more and bosses and shareholders get less. And of course, the overall shift over the last 20 years in terms of what's happened to value-added companies is that more has gone to shareholders and bosses and less has gone proportionately to workers. So there is something to rebalance there. But nearly all the strikes I talked about at the beginning are public sector strikes. And in a sense, they're strikes where the focus of the action is a democratically elected government. I'm sure it's not a government that you have much sympathy for, but nevertheless, a democratically elected government. How does the fact that these are strikes that are a public sector and be really oriented not to managers, bosses, and employers, but actually to the government, how does that shift things?
1: That's a really good question. It's something I've been thinking through a lot myself as well. How do we build power in a sector? also where people care so much about the work. They do. A lot of the organizing that I've done is with foster care workers who are just the most caring and kind people. And obviously, union action that they take, they would never want to compromise the care that they give young people. So often we see in these workplaces that the demands go so much beyond the 5%, the 6%, whatever it is, the pay rise, and goes to the people that they look after. If you visit any picket line, for example, I went to a nurse's picket line recently, and there were the formal demands that people talked about, the percentages and the this and the that. But it was so clear that it was actually a battle for patients as well as for nurses. And mostly what people were chanting for was this safe staffing levels people are saying the staffing levels currently aren't safe. And actually many nurses told me I would give up my pay demand in a second if safe staffing levels were introduced. So I think there's that kind of angle that we can come at it from. But also we can talk about union organising as being not just about this kind of political democracy, the voting for your government every five years, but also about economic democracy in the here and the now. And I think we can have some agreement on the fact that in a meaningful way, people who perhaps aren't managers or don't have managerial roles don't choose much about their work, when they work or what they do at work. I'm sure if workers at Thames Water had a say, they probably wouldn't choose to give big dividends to shareholders and would want to act on this sewage crisis. So building that economic democracy at work through building power, building a union, making demands on what happens at work is crucial, I think. And I think you can think of that as distinct from the political element, as it were, against the Conservative government. Having said that, I think there was a fair amount of anger on the picket line towards the government as well.
0: (laughs) So this, Lydia, opens up an issue that I've thought about for, for decades. And that is that Going all the way back to a report in the 1970s, I don't know if you've ever heard of it, the Donovan Report, advocating a system of industrial democracy in the UK similar to that which has evolved in Germany. And the trade union movement was ambivalent at best about the Donovan Commission. Its view was, well, no, actually the more traditional adversarial view of industrial relations, and this was at a time when trade unions were very, very strong our capacity to get what we want through collective bargaining, that's the way we want to go. And we find these ideas of industrial democracy suspect. We worry that this is really just a way of, in your terms, really, that it's about workers choosing a group of people who end up sympathizing too much with the boss. Now, the reason I ask this is that I'm sure that some of the folk listening to this podcast would say, well, I really do want to engage my staff. I've established a staff council. I'm happy to recognize trade unions, but I want to foster a model of partnership at work. And indeed, in the piece of work I did for Theresa May about modern employment, I argued for a reform which was enacted to make it much easier for workers to get rights to representation and engagement and consultation at work But that also was treated with not a great deal of enthusiasm from the trade union movement. So Lydia, what's your view on this? Your book is really a book about class conflict in many ways. I suspect you share this kind of historical ambivalence stroke indifference towards models of industrial democracy.
1: I think you can say that's fair. I mean, looking at the examples of recent years, which are the ones that I can speak to, I think the suspicion is really well-grounded. I was reading an article just the other day, actually, by Polly Smyth, who's a great labor movement journalist, and she was describing how, you know, whereas most unionized workers have a union premium, so they get paid more than non-unionized workers, actually, in fact, the union who has pushed the partnership model most, ASDOR, that operates in the supermarket sector, their members actually have a union premium deficit. So the workers who work for supermarkets that they have a partnership with actually earn less than workers who work for supermarkets that don't have a partnership agreement with our store. And we've seen throughout the kind of 90s and noughties many similar examples about how this partnership model, this kind of cosy relationship, based on negotiation and not much threatening of action, hasn't really got us far at all. And we can see the proofs in the pudding, you know, the huge real terms drop in wages. So those are the examples that I look to, to kind of ground what is a quite healthy suspicion, I think.
0: It's interesting, Lydia, that you should say that. It kind of reminds me, I remember there was some kind of anniversary of Marx's death or birth or something. And the the magazine I was reading, asked a whole number of people what their view of Marx was, including the right-wing columnist Peregrine Wursthorne. And Peregrine Wursthorne said, yes, I'm a great fan of Marx. He pointed out that society is a struggle of classes and that I know which side I'm on. And in a way, your answer, it kind of makes the point. So for, (laughs) for some of the people listening to this podcast who are in favor of staff engagement and Partnership, the fact that it might lead workers to be more willing to reach compromises, the reason it attracts them is precisely the reason why it worries you. So, Lydia, last question. It's been a wonderful conversation, but last question. You're not an anarchist, you're a socialist. If we were to have a much more egalitarian society, would strikes still have their place? I ask it partly because, and I know you're not a going to be an apologist for Soviet Union before the Berlin Wall fell or China or whatever. But nevertheless, it is a characteristic of state socialist societies that they are even more oppressive towards trade unions and even more hostile to industrial action than governments and employers in capitalist countries. So would there still be strikes in a socialist utopia?
1: Well, I think so. I think so. <laughs> okay. I think where there is work and where there is employment there's conflict at work and you know no matter as we talked about how cozy or nice things might be conflict still arises so yes I think so but I wish that we could get to that moment and that that question wasn't just an academic one so (laughs) so, that's open
0: yeah I know it's interesting because I think and this is a point about your book that part of what you want to say is the capacity to fight back if necessary, is a part of human dignity. And that will always be the case. Well, Lydia, you and I come from very different political traditions, but I really enjoyed reading your book, Troublemaking, and I've really enjoyed talking to you. Thank you so much for joining me on the podcast.
1: I'm glad. And for there are any young people listening who want to get involved and want to organise at work, they just need to look up Organise Now on Google.
0: Thank you. Well, Lydia and I are on opposite poles of the left side of politics. If there was a revolution, I suspect I might be in her firing line. But her book is well worth reading to understand how it can feel to be oppressed and powerless at work and to gain insight into the aims and practices of those who see that injustice as an opportunity to sow the seeds of industrial and political radicalism goodbye. And if you've enjoyed this edition of Forward Vision, please leave a rating or review in your podcast app. It really does make a difference. Thank you. The Forward Institute is a non-profit
1: organisation with the mission of building a movement for responsible leadership. With a network of global business leaders, the Forward Institute facilitates cross-sector learning, creating space for challenging conversations and exploring the very real
0: dilemmas leaders face. For more information, visit forward.institute.